This week, we're joined by Jilene Liu, Head of Asian Investments, Cross-Border Investments at CBRE Hospitality, Operating Real Estate and Seller of Hotels. We chat about the growth and interest in the sector from fresh faces drawn to facts, not fairy tales, as well as the heart at its core. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Tricks, which is the weekly podcast with alarming regularity um, from New Dog PR. Today, we have from from freshly renovated Parisian flat in Breton Stripes. Could you be any more French, Catherine? How are you? I'm very good, thank you. But you are welcome to the French stick. Thank you. Thank you. Just to, uh, if anyone needs doesn't really come over over Zoom, so... Another, another digital nomad bonus. Oh, digital nomads. We'll get on to talking about that, no doubt. Um, joining us, our guest this week is Jolene Liu, who we undenard about the title. And to be honest, we're just going to go with she sells hotels. And she sells hotels at CBRE Hotels. So, you know, if, if we couldn't get more of an apt guest by way of by way of job title, I, I don't know. Jolene, lovely to see you. Thank you for joining us. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's good to see you guys. How's your 2022 going so far? It's been really busy, actually. Um, I didn't quite expect it to be um, so chaotic, um, but it's good. I think a lot of the work that um, we put in in the last quarter um, of 21 is starting to be executed, which is nice. But I, I don't like starting the year slow. Um, it's always nice to come back to with a real object. Definitely. And these, very and these so. things that you're doing, are these things that were a, a slow cook or are these things that people have come back from holidays and gone, you know what, hotels, I can't be asked anymore? These were actually campaigns that we worked on last year. They started off probably in the middle of the year. Um, and to be honest, in a normal timescale, we would probably have expected them to have completed by now. But, you know, COVID times, things drag. Um, so we built in a number of, like, you know, COVID-related clauses with delays and what have you. And... I would have said that usually it'd be like done and dusted by December, but we, we just allowed ourselves that extra time to make sure that we do a DD properly. So, yeah. So assignment started in 2021 um, and closing Q1, hopefully. And are these, are these happy new people to the sector or are they the same old people? We had done, I don't know if you were at, we, maybe you were at the Whitebridge thing the other day, but probably not because they'd be rivals. Um, or whether you like secretly watched it, but they were saying there's been a huge shift in the in the profile of people involved in the sector these days, and it's just private equity sucking everything up in that way that they do. Yeah, it's true that um, private equity has been very active in the uh, last couple of years, especially. Um, but um, I would say the buyer profiles of of the assignments we have on hand include new entrants, which is really nice to see because it's just interesting to learn about the new investment strategies of. Um, new to market players and what's making them interested in the hospitality sector. In one of the assignments, they have traditionally invested in retail and offices, but they now see the long-term benefits and the bounce-back recovery being more resilient than anticipated of the hospitality sector and are you know, taking that first step into the hotel investment market. Uh, the other assignments are really with quite established players, but they haven't been as active as we'd like to see uh, recently, but I would say in the last 12 months that um, her horizon has changed for them and we've seen them very active. Obviously, because it's not completed, we can't say which assignments, what time and who the buyers are. I'll be happy to share that in due course. But, um, but if, if you're, uh, maybe you could ask, if you're, if you're taking your first steps into hotels and we can all look back and remember how that felt back in the day, um, 
what what is what reassures somebody who's looking to the sector for the first time? Are they reassured by brands? Are they reassured by a particular segment? Do they just think this is just better than retail? Courses <laughs> um, for courses, I think. But for the um, first time buyer with that hospitality um, uh, experience, I think there's confidence in the fact that there are experts out there that can help you along that journey. Um, I think the industry has grown so that you're not completely relying on just the brands to support you, but you also have white label operators who are very capable um, in their ability to support owners. Um, and the availability of knowledge of advisors out there has also grown to such specialism that um, people can really talk about it um, uh, very professionally, and, and that gives comfort and to first-time players. And, and also, it just helps them to rely on facts rather than just storytelling uh, from those can do so effectively. When you have over 10, 20 plus years of hard data in a particular market to be able to prove theories, that will certainly help uh, those top investors. It's all about it's all about listening to the science, isn't it? Where have we heard that before? Reoccurring theme. Um what was I going to ask you? Oh, let's um let's talk about Asian investment um and how um because I think when that was that was it that was an interesting um source of funding and then it sort of dipped away. Where where are we where are we now? The the regions are all in such different positions in terms of their recovery and sort of forward trading. How are how is Asian investment viewing the uh the hotel market from where you're sat? Yeah, I think um, Asian investors still keep a keen eye um, on hotel opportunities for sure in the UK. But in terms of overall activity, it has really slowed down compared to pre-pandemic levels. And the type of buying is also quite different. Um, I was kind of like, you know, uh, going through the transactions in 2021, and there was a real mixed bag of um, types of uh, product that sold to Asian buyers. So some of the most significant and interesting ones would probably be the one that closed last month to Fragrance um, Group from Singapore. They obviously bought Kensington Farm, which has been well publicized, which was a, a monster acquisition, you know, 350 million plus. But in that same month, they also closed on a very small scale regional UK um, a loft hotel in the city center of Liverpool. So that was like, you know, a, a big range in terms of buying strategy. Um, and, and what else was interesting was we also did see first-time buyers um, from Asia. Uh, for example, uh, we, we had on market the um, uh, King's Wardrobe, which uh, was 92 key service apartments. That was um, a great example of something that would always sell um, in any market um, and proven so again in a tough market like um, 2021, whereby it was London Freehold VP. You know, when it, when it comes to like the hierarchy of things we want and an investment um, to sell, that, that gets that right. And we had first-time family officers from Asia looking at it. Um, obviously, because it's the first time, they underestimated um, how uh, keen the rest of the market would be on a London freehold asset, uh, so they missed out. But it was just very promising to see um, uh, new entrants uh, in a COVID environment come in and participate in bidding. That said, um, there were... Others like Stoke Park, um, which is that um, golf course um, country club in Buckinghamshire, which sold to India's richest man, you know, 
Um, and that's interesting because it can get more different from a uh, city centre hotel as what fragrance um, have walked through to a golf course in that facility. And another very curious transaction was CDL Hospitality Reap buying into um, their first BTR um, in Manchester. Uh, when I first saw that um, hit the news, I was like, wow, the Hospitality Reap is buying into BTR. How, how do you justify that for, you know, for what the original mandate was, which was uh, income generating hotels that value accretive products to a 80 million forward fund BTR unit in the UK. Um, it just demonstrates that there's a shift in investment strategies. Um, there is no one uh, main trend that has been observed, um, and certainly new players have also come to join the more established players that are already well invested here in Europe and the UK. What's this whirlwind of change doing to pricing? Um, you know what? In the number of campaigns that we've analysed that we've had on market, um, we've actually seen um, our assets sell at the asking price or above asking price. And I think in terms of pricing, we can all agree that 2019 was a peak market. Um, but um, what was really important for um, sellers when they were ready to take to market in uncertain times was to make sure that it would be a failed campaign. So um, rather than just um, awarding assignments to um, firms that gave you the highest price because you know they believe in the product and will sell at a certain level. I think a lot of um, vendors uh, took um, much more care in understanding how brokers got to their opinion of values um, to be able to gauge what really uh, investors would feel about pricing. So to answer your question, it would be um, making sure that the delta between you know, asking price and actual sales price wasn't so big as we looked in a, in a high market um, and really under, understanding the fundamentals of pricing to go to market with credible storytelling um, to justify the ask. Interesting. And um, I wonder whether, as you were talking about the um, the Liverpool city centre sale, um, I mean, city centres are... And this is we we talked, didn't we, about the sort of timing of COVID and how one day sometimes feels like seven months and then sometimes seven months feels like three minutes. But at some point in the last three years, um, city centres were doomed and more for you if you owned a city centre hotel. But um, it does seem that perhaps the tide is ever so slightly shifting. And if you're prepared to take a long view, and we have seen, haven't we, as soon as restrictions ease, people go back to hospitality, to travel, to consuming tourism. Um, so I guess um, um, the news of Google buying the, uh, spending nearly a billion dollars their, on their London HQ this week, do you think city centres will come back? In the, in, in, and if so, in sort of what guise? Yeah, I think they will, um, because for me, you know, it's really timely because we've just opened up Henrietta House after two years of refurbishment. I know, and I want to come and I, see it. Yeah, you're very welcome to it. I, I just absolutely love going into the office. Um, but um, <laughs> the whole workplace has revolutionized so that we have not much more flexibility to make the decision depending on what works for the individuals. But there is certainly enough demand from uh other colleagues I've seen who want to be there like five days a week. Not everybody wants that flexi work option. Their, their work option is to be a permanent resident in the office Monday to Friday when they can't have that. 
And is that an option for CBO? If you want to, you can be in five days a week. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, like, um, in terms of you know assessing what you know department space needs would be, what have you, in that uh, preparation for going back to work after lockdown, we did surveys across you know uh, the entire workplace to understand what type of a profile you would be, and uh, whether you felt that you could work effectively remotely. Um, or whether you felt the other extreme was just going every day, as, as was the case previously. And um, loads of people said that they preferred to be in the office Monday to Friday. Hmm. Why, why was that? It comes with personal circumstances. It may be that um, they don't have uh, as good a setup internet-wise, or maybe they share with other um, uh flatmates and they don't have the space to be able to, you know, just hide away in a dedicated office, um, or they don't have the infrastructure such as, you know, printers and, and multiple screens, which is a, a luxury for some people, right, especially when you're doing a lot of, like, uh, analysis work on small spreadsheets and a laptop is not that great. Um, and also, that you know, we are humans uh, at the end of the day, and, and brokers in particular um, bounce off the energy of other people. So you constantly want to bump into your colleagues and, and share ideas and talk about things and have a channel chin wag. In um, your your glamorous LinkedIn title versus the title that we sort of squished together, which was Sales Hotels, um, one of the areas that you work in is the operational. So operational real estate is your thing. Um, we've talked about hotels. Um, should we spend a few minutes talking about the a tremendous rise of other less traditional operating real estate and how they have um, come to be the sort of the bells of the real estate ball and uh, what they are, whether that will last. Any any other comments you have on those on that segment, please? Yeah, for sure. I mean, like, you know, what's great about CBRE is the breadth of the business and the, um, the experts that we have to help us specialise in those different new sectors, right? Um, so within operational real estate classes, um, we're big in healthcare. Um, so selling like the nursing homes, care homes, what have you, that's been really popular in the last couple of years, um, as well as um, the roadside business. So, you know, from like paternal and guest stations to through to motorway services, we have a de- department dedicated to that. Um, gosh, I'm just trying to think. So healthcare, uh, retirement living, uh, uh, resorts, so like the uh, um, caravan parks. Um, Everyone loves a caravan park these days. Yeah, big do. at the moment um, and the pub sector as well. Um, so those are the main um, operating adjacent spaces, as some people call it, um, within the OPRE operational real estate team. Um, and, I, and sorry, go the on. The second part of your question, which was like, why has it become popular? I guess it's a combination of, you know, what else is there to buy at the moment? Uh, uh, if you look at uh, other very, you know, in favour asset classes like logistics, that's a very crowded space. You know, it's uh, the, the yields have sharpened so tightly that um, you're paying for a warehouse the same price as you would pay for a, a Mayfair um, grade A office product sometimes. It's just quite ridiculous. And, um, and today I was even seeing that uh, article on one of the hotels in, in Watford that has been bought by a developer conversion into like a warehousing space. Um, but, but you know, that's the by and by. I think the reason why um, it's become more interesting for investors is just getting the investor profile, um, wanting to find that yield, uh, needing to diversify the portfolio, and um, just finding um, 
that actually it's not that scary to go into operational real estate classes because there's so many ways of um, uh, negotiating a uh, franchise or a management agreement that it, it's aligned with what the investment strategy is for investor XYZ. Do you think that historically that has been a concern or a caution that the, the, the operating bit of it is befuddling at best? Um, and so people have just thought, yeah, sheds are good. They just sit there, do stuff, warehouses. But, you know, for every bit of befuddlement, presumably with the operating real estate, there is also deep joy to be found in loads of cash. Yeah, absolutely. Like not knowing a sector gives investment companies like, you know, doubt. But when it's a much more liquid market, you have more transaction uh, comparables to be able to justify certain investment decisions. So yes, it's it's self fulfilling. Um, so as as more transactions occur, more people buy into it because you've got evidence to be able to. What's the thing we said before? Follow the science. <laughs> <laughs> Follow the science. Um, yes. yes, that is a pandemic bingo phrase if ever we've heard it. Yeah, but like you know, taking back as well. Um, um, from a investment perspective, we often look about the exit strategy and there's sometimes resistance in going into an asset class where there's a limited pool of buyers at the time that you want to exit. But um, this sector, the, the OPR sector has grown. So the level of quality has grown with it. And, you know, there's much more, uh, it's much more compelling to be able to say in three years time, five years time or whatever time period you have, there will be a deep pool of buyers that will really step into my shoes when we exit. Mm, yeah. A compelling argument. Uh, absolutely. Um, changing tack ever so slightly, um, we fear we may have reached the end of our what's your favourite biscuit conversation or question, which is it's taken a year, which t- I think that is at least 49 weeks more than we thought it would run for. Um, so we're going to... It's, it's good, though. It's good. It pro- it's proved that we've got like a, a huge cross-cultural scope because we have complaints from people in other countries saying we don't know what a digestive biscuit is (laughs) what is it that you're talking about here when you mention garibaldi's um, exactly. That sort of thing. And we wouldn't we wouldn't not want to be inclusive in these difficult times. I think we've somewhat represented the sector as well in the, in the broad range and diversity and coming together of different type of biscuit varieties. And in fact, correct me if I'm wrong, Catherine, did we ever have any two the same suggestions? No. I can't remember. No, I think and they were all very, very different. Yes, the sort of general, you always gotta get a kind of a general low-level support for the base of a of a chocolate hobnob chocolate digestive, all of those. But then it's it's that kind of that special away from the everyday biscuits, the biscuit you're prepared to seek out. Um, one remembers the, the Jeff de Bruges biscuits that we mentioned again last week in which I think about almost hourly. Um, and uh, and it's, it's, it's that, the special biscuit on the top that I think has really set it apart. Yes, mm-hmm. I think so. I think so. Um, and it's surprising show of hands for the dark chocolate in in many biscuit formats, which was which was a which was a yeah yeah. Which proves you- as ever that my grandmother, who's right in so many ways, continues to be right in this, and her constant supporting of the dark chocolate environment from a very young age, and even never doubted. No, well, though I found it, you know, she was always trying to make me eat Bourneville, which is I find terribly grainy. Oh, oh yes. Mm. Exactly. But no, no, no. But no, no. But I can say that what she did also support was the eating before they were even famous of Pringles or their earlier incarnation in the United Kingdom, Stackers, um, which she would dip into uh, Philadelphia. And I can recommend that 
if anyone's looking for it. She did drink it with Ovaltine. It was her, like, her sort of oh my. pre-bed. I want to drink it. Where is this conversation going? <laughs> <laughs> no, where, where it's going, actually, is I've forgotten there was such a thing as a pre-bed snack in the world that you would eat something to well. through the night lest you pass out. But my grandma, both my grandmothers, in fact, were big fans of, oh, you must eat something before bed. Well, there we go. Get your Pringles in Philadelphia here. Yes. But we're having dangled that carrot. We're not going to talk about your favourite no, biscuits all because, local. as we said, we've, we've done it, we've moved on, we've moved on. Um, what we're going to change the question to um, is slightly, well, I was going to say meaningful way, but we'll wait to see what the responses are because one suspects they may not be meaningful, um, is... Uh, so the new question is going to be, what is your most memorable hotel experience? And you can keep it clean or not, depending on how you're feeling this Tuesday morning. But Janine, what is your most memorable hotel experience? As a guest, um, uh, I would say that when I was living in Shanghai, um, it was uh, between 2005 and 2013. And there was a point in time when there was a lot of development happening in the city. It was very exciting. Everybody was getting ready for the World Fair and the Beijing Olympics, what have you. So all the interna- international brands were going into the big cities in China, not least Shanghai, which took a lion's share of all that um, new hotel stock. But um, the Peninsula Hotel opened up along the Bund um, in 2009. And if you recall 2009, that wasn't like the prettiest era in uh, financial times. It was, you know, the great financial crisis, you know, people losing their jobs. So for months, oh, for, yeah, for months and months um, prior to the opening of Peninsula, um, it was quite a sad period of time globally, right? And um, a number of like new hotel projects had stopped, and um, the the new restaurants that were opening up every single week in Shanghai prior to you know 2008 just also stopped. So it was a less vibrant city to be living in. And then all of a sudden, you know, the Peninsula opens up. They had this grand opening, endless bottles of champagne popping, lots of entertainment everywhere. And it was just phenomenal. Um, that was really, really nice to just, you know, attend and uh, be part of. And everybody was in a very joyous mood. And then um, a couple of years later, um, not linked to the opening, it's also where my uh, then boyfriend proposed to me. Nice. Very, very I thought this was just going to be a story about free booze. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> but but you know that's you know that's also kind of like somewhere that's very special to me because of that milestone in my life. Yeah. That was gosh ten years ago. Can you believe it? <laughs> well, I think that was a tremendous response to the first time we've asked that I question. Think so so, I we'll, think so we'll keep the question and thank you for your response. Thank you. <laughs> Catherine, do you have any more pressing uh, and uh, delightful questions for Jeline on hotel investment, whether that be operating real estate, Asian investment, anything related, or should I plow on? No, with it? I'm always, if given the opportunity, always interested in leases. And oh, she is. I am. I am. <laughs> and <laughs> and where? Jolene's face, which you can't see, dear listener, would suggest otherwise. No, I think Jolene is prepared to accept that I'm interested in leases. Just may not be a shared interest. Project. Leases. Okay, leased hotels have a place. I think they're fantastic investment opportunities for uh, buyers who don't like to take on operational lease and they just want to collect the rent. Um, And uh, what is really interesting, though, is that, you know, within the, the European market, um, the German market is known for very being least dominant, right? 
but it's actually lost market share in terms of um, operating tenure um, in the German sector. Just to give some very quick cap numbers, right? Um, we estimate that uh, in 2021, there was some 16 billion or so hotels transacted across, uh, across Europe. The uh, top three markets was UK with just over 3.6 billion. Um, and then the uh, next top performer, Take a guess, guys. What do you think it would be? Spain. Yep, correct. Spain at 3.2 billion, which is in excess of 2019 levels, which was strong. Um, and then third was uh, Germany at just over 2.5 billion. You know, so traditionally, it's usually UK, Germany as the top two spots for hotel investment volumes. But, um, you know, this, uh, this last year it fell into third, third position. Um, and, um, you know, whilst it wasn't increased from the previous year by just under 30%, it's still far below the 29 levels, which was closer to 5 billion. But the change to answer your question about leases is that, you know, while Core and Core Plus still dominated the German market with a market share of about 63% of transactions, there was actually a decrease compared to 2019 figures, which had a share of 83%. So what I am sharing this for this this stat with you for is to demonstrate that you know there is appetite for value add, um, and certainly that is kind of like the in favor um, uh, opportunity when we come to um, what we're seeing across the rest of Europe of what investors are looking for value add value add what can I do to make it more value increasing? Yeah, well, I guess it sufficiently scratch your um, lease itch. Nothing can can fully scratch my lease itch. But I'll allow it, and I won't talk about REITs. Um, <laughs> but but it's interesting what you say about value add because that does speak to the people aren't getting the bargains they thought they were going to get during the pandemic, doesn't it? So we have to find a way to make it better by you know adding a hot tub <laughs> or some umbrellas. Some umbrellas, yeah, that's what I would do if I was in private equity. <clears throat> Definitely. Um, Janine, we're, we're hurtling towards the end of this chat and having successfully covered off Biscuit's memorable hotel experience and leases, I think we should, you know, we should chalk this up as an enormous success. Um, so we ask our um, guests the same set of questions uh, towards the end. So starting with um, when the shutters came up and I had the jabs in my arm, the first thing I did was... I really should say something like on message about the hospitality sector. Like I built my family staycation and we had a great time in, in, on the domestic shores. But I think the first thing I did was probably go shopping because I was just sick of buying things online that didn't fit me. So, yes. <laughs> it's a conundrum, this one, isn't it? Because one wants to say something very sort of heartfelt and meaningful. Um, but actually, it's just. Yeah, I mean, go shop. Just and also, perhaps I mean, don't want to put words in your mouth, but I would have gone shopping to just get away from everyone that I've been stuck in the house with <laughs> for the last however many months. Um, but yes, I think your totally your honesty is very much appreciated. Um, the best thing about the hotel sector is the people, um, and I don't mean to be cheesy uh, when I say this, but um, the people is what is so special about the hospitality service um, um, sector, not just. The people that greet you when you arrive at a at um, at a hotel, but um, the people behind the scenes, the operators and the owners that you don't often meet as well. Um, I think it really brought home to me just how special the network that we have was when we went into lockdown back in March uh, 2020, 
and there was this you know race against time to help the nhs um get more bids uh get more car parking spaces and everything else that they needed to support the surge in demand and what was i don't think widely known to the general public at the time was the enormity of it all and the efforts which went behind the scene um, that um, uh, C. Barry and the wider team had in terms of helping the NHS get uh, the extra number of beds for the staff that had to self-isolate, uh, the car parking spaces in close proximity to the, to the hospitals and the extra storage space that they needed for the equipment that um, was envisaged for, for this whole COVID pandemic. Um, but um, obviously, as a firm, we leveraged our entire network of owners and operators to reach out to them to support this extra need. But what was really nice to have happened was that the owners and operators reached out to us as well to say that, hey, if you need my hotels, if you need my bins, if you need my car parking spaces, we're there to support you. And in many cases, uh, a lot of them offered these spaces for free. And um, I can't thank them enough uh, for the common goal that we were working towards um, at the peak of the di- at the start of the pandemic, not not the peak, but the start, and that's really special. I can well imagine, and your emotion speaks demonstrates that uh, it, it is it is a remarkable sector. <coughs> it really is, and and it show and and when put under pressure, it's when tr- sort of true remarkableness comes to the fore, isn't it? Yeah, it's the it's the reality <coughs> that really touched me. Yeah, yeah, I can I can um I can well imagine. And um, what about uh the improvement of it? So the next question, the hotel sector would be significantly improved if um sustainability. Um I don't like mm-hmm. throwing buzzwords like ESG out there, but I think we live in a world with limited resources and over tourism <laughs> is a real thing. Um, so the staycation trend has proven that we can enjoy, you know, a good time at home without too much yeah. impact on the carbon footprint. But I think what can be improved is transparency and governance um, mm-hmm. so that consumers have um, the right facts. Um, a standard way of measuring how hotel is um, forecast and um, what's the word? looking for forecast and um, share their carbon footprint or impact, whatever you want to call it, so that consumers have the choice to mm. be able to make the right choice on where they stay and, and how they choose a holiday. Absolutely. Um, what about um, what the in- so the next question is what the industry needs now is? Um, you know, we need confidence that the vaccines are working, we need confidence that the governments are making rational decisions and that, you know, our Bella holiday makers are doing the right things and behaving appropriately to protect each other. Um, and, you know, and it's not just about the individual wanting to have a good time when they're out. So, and also confidence in, in uh, pricing staying or growing and confidence um, that things will return to how it used to be, but if not then. And finally, what, um, what have we learned from this? Uh, you know, so much. Um, I think that uh, community is key uh, and then that it doesn't just relate specifically to the hotel operation itself, but the community with, within the space that we work. So the investments market, you know, the PR markets, um, to look out for each other where we can and just be honest about um, 
what's happened so that we can reflect and, and uh, learn from it together. That was terrific. Thank you, Janine, so much. Um, thank you for thank you for your honesty um, and for your answers. And um, yeah, it was it was really really lovely to hear from you. Thank you. Um, and all the best. I hope I'm gonna I'm coming to Henrietta House. I'll bring biscuits and um, there tomorrow, you're welcome. I'd like to see all the all, all the shiny newness. Um thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, Jean. I think that concludes the uh, the episode for today. Thank you everybody for listening. Um and you can share and like and do all those things. Don't really mind what. Um have a lovely time and we'll see you. Uh, hear from you. Enjoy your listening ears for the next episode. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Bye. So that concludes our thoughts for this week. Thank you to everyone involved in creating this episode and providing something for your ears whilst walking the dog, washing the cat, chopping the veg, or however else you pass the time while podcasting. Please do review and subscribe if you get your ear entertainment via Apple or follow new tricks if your ear delight comes from Spotify. These things make a difference, apparently. Until next time.